Ah, no, not again. I'm starting to get tired of swords. Welcome to the Indiana Jones Universe, the podcast that explores the incredible adventures of the world's greatest globetrotting archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Each episode is a casual and somewhat humorous opinionated conversation with a slightly sophisticated analytical study of the expanded universe content from the Indiana Jones franchise. You can expect to find discussions about the adventures of young Indiana Jones, the further adventures of Indiana Jones comic books, the Staff of Kings and Emperor's Tomb video games, the Indiana Jones novels, the original soundtracks, and so much more. Hello, everybody, and welcome back uh, to another episode of the Indiana Jones Universe podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 86. And today uh, we are continuing our discussion and exploration of the Marvel comic series, The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Uh, Today we're taking a look at issue number 26, Trail of the Golden Guns. Uh, This is part one of a two-part story. Um, And this comic, I think, has a lot to unpack here. Uh, This was published in 1985, right after the release of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So the big sort of headline and sort of uh, attention grabber of this comic is the cameo from Short Round. Uh, He takes up a jaw-dropping two pages, uh, but nonetheless, it is a really fun appearance. And uh, this is a pretty significant comic because it's the second and final time that Short Round has ever appeared in the entire Indiana Jones franchise. So we will obviously get to that in a little bit. Um, But most importantly, I think this comic is actually really intriguing. um, And it's sort of taken over by a different character, Elizabeth Cody, who is the uh, granddaughter of Buffalo Bill. And they are after the golden guns that have been, of course, stolen, as always. And Indy sort of takes a little bit of a side role in this one and isn't really sort of the stereotypical hero that we always know. And I always think, especially towards the end in part two, which we'll get to, the ending of this kind of emphasizes that idea. So I think this is going to be a really interesting study and one of those comics that kind of deviates from the rest. But let's just get right into it and talk about the cover and the first opening prologue. And of course, joining me as always to talk about this one is my great friend, Elijah. Hi, uh, good to be here today. Um, One of the things, yeah, what you were saying about short round there is that, you know, as one of the most, I think, likable characters especially from um temple of doom uh it's really fascinating that he doesn't really appear in much other stuff so we can unpack that maybe but i do enjoy his inclusion in the um the prologue which leads me to my other point that this comic has a prologue and like the films 
you know, we're right in the middle of one of Indy's adventures. And then, you know, as per usual, whatever he's doing, he gets ambushed. But yeah, I guess another thing I like is that um, in this prologue, we see something new until, well, we haven't seen it in film until Dial of Destiny, but Indiana Jones doing underwater archaeology. Uh, I think this is sort of a realm that hasn't been dove into well enough. And so we should, I, I really enjoy seeing it. You know, there's a lot of cool things like shipwrecks and stuff you can explore. And in this one, Indy's trying to find Atlantis. Um, but yeah, I enjoy this sort of introduction here. And let's talk about the cover for a moment. Um, what's interesting here is that we have Indiana Jones sort of spread out on the ground and there's a menacing figure standing over him. And then there's a bunch of horses. And clearly in this image, um, Indy is not on top, which is, you know, it happens to his character quite a bit. So I'm curious how he's going to escape this one. Yeah, the cover is like extremely chaotic, I think. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious, isn't it? You know, obviously some other character has control of Indy's whip or has a whip of his own. Obviously, we will learn about that a little bit later uh, with sort of the cliffhanger of part one. But yeah, Indy is sort of tied down, getting dragged by these two horses. Of course, his fedora is falling off, which is a classic detail there. Um, but I always thought that this comic, or this cover in particular for this comic, uh, really didn't grab my attention that much. I mean, some of them obviously are different than others. This one I feel like is a little bit just too busy. There's a little too much going on. Uh, same with part two as well, and you sort of have to kind of really draw your eye into it to figure out what's going on. Um, and also, you know, obviously this is the most important scene uh, from the end of this uh, first half. So it makes sense that that is the actual cover. Uh, but going into the opening scene, I completely agree with you. One of the most intriguing parts of this is this opening prologue, which is a true prologue because it has no relation to the rest of the story. Remember, some of these other films uh, and some of these other adventures that Indy has, you know, there might be a prologue, but it sort of kind of connects back. Not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but in this one, it is entirely different. Indy is obviously scuba diving, he meets Short Round, and then they're back at Marshall College, and it's over. N none of that ever comes back. None of the details are relevant at all. So it really is sort of a true prologue in Indiana Jones style fashion. Uh, he's getting aggressively attacked by this sea serpent in the Caribbean. Uh, he's surrounded by fish underwater with the scuba diving suit. I mean, really awesome, you know, sketches and illustrations here. You know, this idea of underwater archaeology, which isn't really explored a lot. Like you said, Dial of Destiny kind of brings that into it. But I would love to see more adventures with Indy doing underwater archaeology. I mean, it's such an interesting topic, especially with the Titanic and other things like that, and just the vast, you know, seabed floor. You know, what is under there? What could you find? So the attention to detail, again, of creating these sort of cinematic images in this comic is, is really well thought out, and Indy looks pretty cool with that scuba suit, I must say. Yeah, I like what you said there. I mean, what happens is Indy, he's sort of on a dive. He needs to get this, you know, archaeological piece uh, from in, in between some rocks, and there's an eel um, that's sort of guarding it. And so Indy tries to lure it out with his shoe, um, <laughs> and then he bags it for some reason. Um, and then he swims up to the surface and is ambushed, just like with Belloc. I mean, my question here is, how does he catch the sea serpent in that bag, or the eel, so to speak? Uh, I mean, he comes blazing out of that rock and grabs Indy's shoe immediately, and sort of he just throws him in this bag, and he doesn't seem to escape. I mean, a little bit sort of stretching the boundary there, but it's, it's you know, a little fun moment. Um, and of course, uh, you know, creatures and reptiles, you know, always are in the way of the antiquities, which is, you know, a classic indie staple, so you really have to like that there. And yeah, he quickly swims to the surface to gasp for air, and, uh, you know, obviously he has this sort of equipment raft, and, you know... 
one of the things I noticed right here as well, whenever Indy has some sort of apprehensive or nervous thought in these comics, it's always paired with a close-up shot on his face. And that's really important to emphasize that. Um, and there's a great blue-tinted shot of Indy's face right here as well. Um, when he finally, you know, kind of comes up to... Um, gasp for air, there is a boat that is anchored next to Indy's raft when he gets back to the surface, and it's this Captain Belgrade uh, who suspects that he is treasure hunting at Paradise Point. And Indy's response is like, oh, thanks, that's mighty swell of you, you know? And there's two great sketches that look exactly like Harrison Ford here. Really, really nice here. I thought those were kind of cool. Um, but one thing I really wanted to mention here, um, of course, uh, Temple of Doom has now come out, so uh, the writers can kind of bring in some elements of that film. And there's one line here that, to me, is a clear reference to Temple of Doom when he says, not me. I'm a scientist. Obviously, the scene with Willie there when they're inside uh, right after they're meeting Chatter Lal. Uh, clear reference to Temple of Doom there. I think that was really kind of interesting. Yeah, this comic definitely draws on that film for sure. And one of the things I really enjoyed is there's a quote in here that Indy says, Hey, look, pal, I filled out all the forms in Bimini. I've got the proper permits. And that to me just it, it feels like Harrison Ford speaking. Uh, especially with the use of, hey, look, pal. I mean, the way he introduces it, that sounds like indie right there. Um, and there's a lot of lines in this comic that don't really sound like indie, and so this sort of helps balance it out, I think. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things, too, that I thought was interesting about this as well is, you know, they also have a really interesting reference here to uh, the city of Atlantis. Uh, indie is supposedly looking for clues to the lost city of Atlantis. Eventually, this becomes a video game and a comic, I'm not sure if that was any reference. I presume that was just a coincidence. Uh, but really interesting that that sneaks its way in there. And sort of this idea that, you know, they think Indy is after fortune and glory, right? Instead of uncovering these new historical and archaeological discoveries, he's just after all of the loot like a grave robber. So he holds Indy at gunpoint, and there's a clever ploy here when Indy gives them the loot, since, of course, they've got all the weapons, and he throws the bag over to the captain, and the <laughs> sea serpent attacks everyone. Hilarious moment here, of course. Really over-the-top drawings and sound effects when all of these enemies on top of uh, the boat of course, are just shouting in terror, and, uh, you know, all the deckhands shout and scream, and of course, and, um, finally, uh, he orders them to kill Indy, um, and again, there's this great intense close-up to emphasize that a little bit more, and, uh, Indy decides to use his flare gun to attack the boat, lacking any real weapons on hand here. Yeah, I mean, I think these two pages right here have great sort of action illustrations. We have Indy shooting the flare gun, the explosion on the boat, and then short round coming in to save the day. And you can really sense the action. There's a lot of like hard inked lines and stuff and extra detail I think that was put into this moment here that really draws you in. And then of course there's another nice reference with short round about um, when they were playing cards. You know, it makes me think, you cheat Dr. Jones. Yeah, it's a classic moment here, and really just for the fun and nostalgia of sort of paying tribute to his character and, and doing it for the fans. I love the fact that Short Round comes in, very similar to the Sea Butchers comic, where Jock comes in during the prologue and kind of saves the day, and then of course he doesn't really appear for the rest of the comic. Very similar situation there. Uh, so I love that Short Round comes in here and has this appearance on screen to sort of save the day. And one of the things as well that I thought was really interesting about this is, you know, it, it's sort of mind-boggling to me, you know, besides, you know, expanded universe fans like us, and I'm sure a lot of you listening, not many people know that Short Round is in this comic at all. I mean, they don't really market it as sort of a Short Round story, obviously, because he's only in here for just a couple of pages in this opening scene. But, you know, if you were to ask, you know, most casual fans, you know, 
you know, how many adventures is Short Round in? They'd be like, is that a trick question? Like, it's just Temple of Doom, right? So, like, no one knows really about this. And again, this is the second and final appearance Short Round has ever made. Obviously, a lot of hype around his character right now because of the Academy Awards, of course. Um, but, you know, really interesting that Short Round kind of comes back and they had the chance to kind of experiment with his character and figure out what he was doing. Obviously, he has the New York Yankees cap on. Great to see that come back. That's just a classic. And again, I love this idea that Indy somehow grabs the catch ring as the boat speeds past him. I love this idea that Short Round is always in the getaway vehicle, right? You know, and he's <laughs> always the one, you know, and Indy's getting dragged against the hull of the boat. And, you know, Short Round says, you know, Indy's slowing down the boat. This guy's, you know, literally fending for his life here. And of course, Short Round calling him Dr. Jones. That is a classic. Very realistic drawings, I thought, as well here. Um, you know, and, and Short Round looks very accurate. And Indy decides to secretly bring him along as the ace in the hole. But I mean, it looks like they're sort of just kind of in open water. I'm not sure where Short Round was hiding with his boat. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, there's a nice exposition here to remind the fans of what happened in Temple of Doom, right? Indy met Short Round in Shanghai as a pickpocket, right? And of course, Short Round's parents have died. Indy sort of takes him under his wing. And, you know, Short Round has to go back to boarding school when the adventure is over. So that is, again, a really nice way to reference Temple of Doom there. And of course, great exchange here. Gosh, Indy, I'd rather stay with you. School, no fun. And he's like, oh yeah, why not? Nobody shoots at you there. You know, so great exchanges of dialogue here that feel so genuine and kind of wrap up this really nice sort of uh, fun escape with Short Round kind of back in the saddle, I guess. Let's move on to um, to Marshall College. Here we are again, uh, Indy's back and he's got his artifact, which he's reading a paper. It turns out it was just a ballast weight. An archaeologist with that much experience might have been able to tell if it was just a ballast weight. But, you know, maybe that's just being a bit nitpicky there. Uh, but then we are introduced to um, to Erfram Decker from the State Department and Elizabeth Cody, who turns out to be Buffalo Bill's granddaughter. I have to note, there is a line in here that, oh, let me just read it for you. We'd like to jaw with you a spell if you're willing. And I think that's just like the worst line I've had the misfortune of reading. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, just right off the bat here, you know, obviously Elizabeth Cody clearly is supposed to be from the South. Uh, obviously the granddaughter of the famous, uh, I guess, cowboy, Buffalo Bill. Um, and yeah, they try to sort of emphasize her accent with the uh, dialogue I don't think it works very well at all. There are a couple of moments where you're just sort of sitting there like, is this English? Like, you're just trying to read it. Uh, obviously, it would make much more sense in a film or something. Uh, but going off of this as well, again, you go back to Marshall College. Again, you have the reason of sort of what happened, right? So Indy obviously gets sort of, I guess, this fake antiquity, right? And so they just sort of pass that off for now. Marcus isn't there, actually, which is interesting, nor is Marion here at all. Uh, so they obviously are trying to sort of shake things up a little bit. And then Indy gets introduced to his two new comrades who are going to kind of start the adventure. And, and this scene really reminded me, actually, of Emperor's Tomb and the way that starts out when Marshal Kai and Mei Ying actually show up. Uh, sort of, you know, obviously a different situation there where they end up uh, sort of splitting off. And Marshal Kai, of course, is the villain there. Uh, but, you know, here it was a very interesting situation where they come to Indy already knowing his experience as an archaeologist. And one thing I wanted to mention here, you know, with all of these character names, uh, you know, we've had quite an array of characters and names uh, in these comics before. Harvey Pondexter, Busby Giles, um, Ian McIver, and now we have 
Ephraim Decker? I mean, where do they come up with some of this stuff, man? Seriously. <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, I, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. The creativity here is unparalleled. I mean, these names are just absolutely outrageous. I mean, they're fantastic that we have some originality, but I mean, Ephraim Decker? I mean, where do we come up with this stuff, man? Uh, so it's it's great that, yeah, it's not some, you know, generic name like, like John Smith or something. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so they show up and uh, Elizabeth Cody, who who is more commonly known in the comic as Beth, is the granddaughter of Buffalo Bill. Um, and of course, Marcus referred both of them to Indy. And Indy, you know, says, oh, I got a few minutes to spare before my next class, right? And uh, there's a great, you know, kind of quote at the top, you know, uh, from the narrator, you know, and soon in a cubicle cluttered with rarities and unanswered mail. And, you know, that's a great descriptor to kind of pull us into that environment of where Indy is. Um, and like you said, really kind of egregious almost how they try to emphasize uh beth's southern accent here um and of course you know we kind of get a little bit of exposition here you know the czar of russia awarded buffalo bill with a special pair of golden guns uh, for his wild west show which were displayed at a museum in wyoming after he died um and there's this really interesting montage and sketch really that takes up a full page of buffalo bill as sort of the stereotypical american cowboy now i know you were talking a lot about the line work and the illustrations and sketches in the gold goddess i thought this one just generally speaking was a little bit generic and, and a little bit lackluster i didn't really see any colors or, or specific illustrations that stood out to me the most obviously beautiful um work as always and there's a couple of great moments but just generally overall i wasn't a huge fan of it but i do like these montages that they put together and i thought they were interesting i mean what are your thoughts on that yeah i would like to say this one panel right here that shows sort of buffalo bill's character and sort of explains his show in the backdrop with the golden guns. I think that's a really well done page. Um, and I also enjoy the sort of montage because you, you read the page, it goes down and it leads right up to the present moment where they're talking about it. So I think that's really cool. A fun fact, I almost went to the Buffalo Bill Museum and the real location, at least present day, is just outside of Denver, Colorado. And there is also a museum um, in Cody, Wyoming. So there's, there's two of them, but his grave is in Colorado. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah, I've, I've never been to the Buffalo Bill Museum. Um, I wasn't really f too familiar with Buffalo Bill before this comic as well. Uh, that's really interesting, actually. And, and again, you know, that's one of the things that I thought was interesting about this comic in particular. You know, Indy is very interested in the historical significance of the Golden Guns because it's sort of this American legend. So him, obviously, um, as an American himself has a little bit more of a connection to this and clearly really wants to get these golden guns for the museum. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting idea here when they're back at Marshall College. Um, now, one thing I wanted to mention as well is, you know, there's a great shot of Indy thinking and rubbing his chin here. And, you know, this is when the quote comes in, you know, Dr. Brody said you were always going off to recover lost relics and the like. He said it was a specialty of yours, right? So again, there's this idea <laughs> that Indy is always recruited for these missions. Um, and Indy immediately suggests that they consult the State Department. He's like, you know, forget it. I have other things to do. They're going to be a better resource for you. And Ephraim Decker actually works at the State Department and was the one who recommended Indy to Beth. So that's kind of an interesting change there. And the administration is, is really concerned about the conflicts between the Bolshevik rulers and Nazi Germany, which again, bringing in that history into it, a little bit of Petrograd there, obviously with the Bolshevik uh, rulers here. And then again, 
Indy claims he's not much of a politician. Uh, you know, indirect reference to young Indy there, obviously, Paris 1919, when Indy uh, considers becoming a diplomat. Um, and, you know, he obviously, again, as I said before, he really, you know, kind of thinks about how historically significant these guns are. And, you know, he kind of quietly says, and he'd get handsomely paid by the American government. So he agrees. And uh, he's like, all right, I'll do what I can. And and one, you know, line here to emphasize, again, maybe the, the accent of uh, Beth Cody here. She was like, hot dang, you know, when Indy <laughs> agrees <laughs> to come uh, on the adventure, which is, you know, a little jarring there. But, you know, classic uh, comic moment, I think, in terms of the dialogue. Yeah, and talking about the State Department here, it seems they're always going after Indy. And I have an interesting question about the timeline because, you know, does this take place before or after Raiders? Obviously, um, the events of Temple of Doom play in here because Short Round's there which suggests it's after, you know, Temple of Doom, obviously. But the State Department wouldn't know about Indy's capabilities until after he procures for them the Ark, right? Yeah, you know, I think it's a fair point. And from my understanding, I think all of the comics, at least the way they were written... Um, for the Further Adventures. The idea was that they were in 1936, and I think there were a couple, the last couple of ones, after Trail of the Golden Guns, or could be Trail of the Golden Guns, were 1937. So they're definitely not more in a span of two years. Um, as for how Indy does all these adventures in a matter of a year, that's a question for the writers. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's really interesting, I guess, to, to your point, you know, how much change actually happens in just this one year. Because, like you said, Marion's not involved, Marcus is not involved. Probably just as a decision to include other characters and, and kind of let them uh, kind of sit out for this one. Um, but, yeah, I think the idea is that, obviously, Temple of Doom happens in 1935, Raiders in 1936. The bulk of these comics, 20 or something adventures also happens after Raiders in 1936, and then a couple of them finish out in 1937. But as for its strict timeline, I'm not exactly sure. Now, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the next scene is there's an interesting quote from earlier that Indy says, you know, I guess even in archaeology, you can't win them all. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting quote that maybe could be seen as a little bit of a theme for this comic, because as we'll see, Indy never actually obtains the golden guns in the end for the museum. And so I think there's a couple of questions as sort of what does Indy gain out of this adventure? Um, and that's sort of an interesting thing that we'll see. So anyway, uh, moving on into the next scene here, uh, Indy and Beth are traveling by train, uh, which in the entire series of the further adventures of Indiana Jones is always really illustrated very beautifully. Uh, they're traveling to Russia. There's this great green and yellow sketch of Indy and Beth looking out the window from the train, a really great camera placement and perspective as if it's a film. Um, and Indy mentions that he has been to Russia once before, and there's a quite an ironic yet witty remark from Elizabeth uh, when she says that this is her first time outside of the United States, and she's looking forward to a little excitement uh, in this adventure, which I thought was kind of an interesting comment. Um, now, one thing that kind of came up when we were talking about sort of um, Beth Cody and the fact that she's trying to uh, regain these golden guns from her grandfather Kind of interesting that we really don't know anything about Indy's grandparents. This was just a thought that I had. Uh, really, we know almost nothing. Not that that's significant in any way. But given the fact that, you know, most of the time, um, Indy and or his, you know, fellow allies are always usually after something from their father. You know, like, of course, that's just sort of the generic sort of like adventure thing. Like, oh, I need to honor my father, right? This time it's a grandfather. And that just sort of made me think about Indy's grandparents and the fact that we really don't know much about them at all. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying earlier, um, I think it's not only a theme for this comic, but kind of a theme for Indy himself. There's rarely a time, at least in the films, when Indy actually obtains and gets an artifact from wherever it is to the museum. 
not the Ark, not the Sankara Stones, not the Grail, um, and not the Crystal Skull either, if you want to mention that film. But yeah, it's it's really, I think, a theme for him as himself. He's not He doesn't always come out on top. It's more about, I guess, surviving and the lessons he takes away uh, and what he learns more than the actual MacGuffin of this story. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think that's one of the big themes in this comic in particular, which is why it's so interesting. Um, now, just as Indy says, you know, that the U.S. has become too civilized, so to speak, of course, a bullet crashes into the window of the train and the Cossacks attack the train. Of course, uh, Indy uh, has encountered the Cossacks in other historical encounters in Travels with Father uh, and the Adventures in the Secret Service, of course. Uh, those obviously have not uh, been published yet at the time of this comic, but kind of interesting that that comes back. Um, and one of the soldiers gets quite feisty with the train operator. Great quote here. You will be stopping the train now, comrade, or I will be stopping your life, which <laughs> that's a great quote there. Um, and here's my question, though. How did he get on the train in the first place? Obviously, he tells them to stop the train and there was no station there. Or it looks like maybe there was a station there. I don't know how they got onto the train for him to stop it. A little bit of kind of miscommunication maybe there or maybe i just misread something but you know it's a hilarious scene when the train operator slams on the brake and indy goes flying forward into the other passengers and he's like some jerk hit the brake and his hat flies off too which is just a great detail yeah i believe it's because he probably jumped from the horse onto the train uh oh i you know, see kind of like in you know um the last crusade for instance because uh, you can see in the panel right before that they're all uh riding and then the train is right next to it um but yeah, Indy is thrown onto his onto the ground, and before he has time to really get up again, they're already have they've already been boarded, uh, and so Indy thinks on his feet, so to speak, or maybe on his knees, and grabs an old lady's lunch and throws it at them and tries to fight his way out of the situation. But of course, he ends up on the ground with a sword above his head. And I do enjoy the creative use of angles here. You know, we see when Indy's on the ground, there's one that's like he says he's going down. And the whole panel is upside down, too. Uh, so I thought that was cool. And then, of course, the shot from the ground looking up uh, gives the man with the sword more power in the frame. And then, of course, um, Beth saves him by shooting the sword. And this will happen a lot throughout the next two comics. You know, it's a theme. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. That was an amazing shot. I mean, just the camera is aligned with Indy's eyesight there as his upside down perspective of the Cossacks while he's hitting the floor of the train is evident to us as the reader. That was just so, so clever. Really love when they experiment with cool ideas like that, rather than just giving us, you know, the same, you know, sort of mid-range shot every single time. Now, one thing I wanted to mention here that I thought was a little bit strange, and I didn't notice this until I sort of went back and reread it this time, is Indy tries to slow down the Cossacks by stealing someone's lunch, as you mentioned, which, if you really look closely, happens to be a large basket of apples it's really sort of strange he's like here let me take this lunch and it's these apples and he throws them on the cossacks and the lady is just like oh no you know she's just sitting there and so indy i guess in this case uses the power of confusion to defeat his enemies right so it's one of those signatures where you know in the comics indy always gets attacked midway through a sentence or thought bubble, right? He's like, I think, and then he just gets attacked, right? So, you know, very kind of similar idea that we've seen in multiple comics. But 
Um, now, one of the things we have to mention, and this goes back to some of the quotes uh, that we used in today's uh, opening episode, uh, Indy says the last time he fought enemies with swords, he had his whip in India and his revolver in Cairo. So now the Temple of Doom comes out, they bring in that reference, and of course reference Raiders as well. And that was a nice hint from the writers uh, to add that in there purely for the fans, referencing Temple of Doom and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Obviously, both of those films had now been released at this point. Uh, so that was, I think, a really nice kind of thing to add in there for us. I guess that sort of solves some of the chronology issues I was asking about before, because now we know it takes place after the events of Raiders. Ergo, the State Department knows about Indy and his capabilities. But then short round returning um, means that he's got a sort of longer term relationship with the kid, which is, you know, that's nice. Good to know they're still in touch. And that was, I think, one of the things that was really, again, kind of puzzling to me is like, why didn't you advertise Short Round being in the comic? Why didn't you include him, you know, more in the comic? I mean, there's one comic, again, going back to the Sea Butchers, where Captain Katanga, who, I mean, really in Raiders of the Lost Ark has a much more minor role than Short Round. He's in the comic quite a bit. And I would have loved Short Round to be kind of Indy's right-hand man here. Um, because again, you don't have Marion, uh, you don't have Marcus. Um, and it's really just kind of Indy and Beth Cody and then P uh, Peter Rustoff, who we'll learn about a little bit later. Um, but continuing on here, you know, there's this classic action hero shot, you know, on the Cossack soldier when, when Beth breaks his sword and Indy is surrounded and turns around to meet Peter Rostov face to face. And Indy is immediately confused why Peter knows him already. And he mentions the whereabouts of the golden guns of Buffalo Bill. And that instantly captures Indy's attention. He's like, what? And you know, there's that intense close up. And of course, Indy and Beth get off the train and she refuses to travel anywhere with this guy. She has a really bad feeling about this. Um, and the Red Calvary suddenly appear at the top of the ridge of the opposing enemies for the Cossacks. And Beth uh, suggests to Indy, why don't we ride with the Red Calvary? Um, but Indy says they're not as authoritative as you might think. Uh, their interrogation tactics are the most unpleasant. Uh, so this actually kind of uh, is a reference to the misunderstanding that Indy was talking about earlier on the train, implying that his first trip to Russia concerned some sort of unfriendly encounter with the Red Cavalry, uh, which of course we as an audience are pretty unaware of. So I don't know if that was referencing something or just creating extra backstory that was supposed to be left unknown, but Indy and Beth get on horseback to ride with Peter and his men. Yeah, and one thing I want to note here is I think... Um, the illustrations of Indy look more like Harrison Ford in these two comics than they do in uh, the Search for Abner comics. I mean, for instance, on page 13 in the lower left panel, uh, I think that one's particularly well done. And then, of course, we see a great illustration of the Red Army, and they're sort of framed as this whole cavalry force, and then their captain sends them off to charge after them. And, of course, this means they have to make a quick decision, and they ride with the Cossacks. Uh, and then... Beth is showing off her skills, which they frown upon because, as we will find out later, there's going to be a shooting competition. Yeah, and it's a terrific moment here when, when her talent with a rifle is, is revealed to us um, to kind of align her interest with the Golden Guns with her grandfathers, right? Sort of that next generation of of great gunmen, I guess. Um, and it's a well-sketched gunfight, you know, separated into three panels in succession uh, as she swivels on her horse and quickly pulls out her rifle. Like, really well done there. You can kind of envision that action sequence. Um, and it, like you said, Peter quickly tells Beth that she's wasting the ammunition, and Indy's confused why Peter told Beth to stop shooting. Uh, so they obey the orders, and they leave those questions unanswered. Um, and they are told not to deviate from the course, which leads to the banks of, of this river. And uh, this is a really interesting kind of moment here when 
the Cossack soldiers actually stand on top of their horses to stay dry. Uh, Peter is leading Indy and his men right down the middle of the river as sort of this diversion for the Red Cavalry, and their horses cannot gallop through water as well as the Cossacks. So they've made this fatal mistake, and now the Cossacks have enough time to finally escape. Uh, and there's this interesting quote by the narrator that says, Indy grins and grudgingly admires the ingenuity of his captors slash companions, which brings up an interesting point. At this point, we are unaware whether these are Indy's allies or enemies. That's true. And I think there is some nuance to be had here because, you know, Indy's had um, pretty bad encounters with the Cossacks before. And so this is sort of the first time you see them in any sort of positive light. Uh, and speaking of light, this illustration of their camp is, I think, really well done. It sort of captures the feeling of um you know being out in the wilderness and it reminds me a lot of the uh of the camp in crystal skull where uh we first see you know oxley and then we encounter this very crude character here um named pugachev who is in very a very unsavory type of fellow Indeed. I mean, they arrive at the camp at dusk, uh, and she is aggressively removed from her horse by this ruthless brute. Uh, and the villainous men are illustrated in a shade of red, which I thought, again, was a very interesting choice there in terms of um, sort of coloring and shading. Um, Indy quickly protects Beth and, and throws aside the brute, right? Um, and he pulls out his sword to attack what he calls Indy as uh, an outsider. Um, and this is what Indy finally says. He's starting to get tired of swords, right? I mean, that's just great, isn't it? You know, terrific moment when Indy grabs this lit firewood, the sword pierces it, and he kicks it into the brute's face. Uh, and then Pugachev there is covered in flames. Um, my question is, though, then in the next scene, he says he wants revenge on Indy. Suddenly he's fine? I mean, if we've seen anything from, you know, Revenge of the Sith, I mean, Anakin, you know, kind of on fire there. How on earth is he just fine after being covered in flames? You think that would have done him, you know, completely, uh, he would have been gone at that point. Um, but Peter quickly summons Indian Beth to meet the tribal chief, uh, Peter's grandfather, again, emphasizing the idea of a grandfather this time instead of a father, uh, the sort of the chief of the tribe. Yeah, and as we meet the chief, it kind of feels like, um, the beginning of a video game mission or something, you have an elderly person who, you know, gives you an objective, you have to retrieve a certain item and fulfill some sort of quest to restore someone's honor. Uh, and so it's a very simple premise, uh, but I, I still think it works for the story. And then, of course, we get his perspective of the events with Buffalo Bill, and that creates another nice sort of well-done montage panel. Yeah, that's a really great point, actually. And I think this scene with the the, the tribal chief is really interesting because you learn sort of the other side of the story here, right? Um, and, you know, Peter as well is incredibly vague when he says that he learned about Indy's motives through this, what he calls an old spy system. I'm like, really? I mean, that's <laughs> I'm not really sure what that's supposed to mean. Uh, but, it, but it's sort of confusing to me and, and brings up some of the issues I had with just sort of the overall plot and just I guess the logic of it, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but, you know, for starters, the chief says that the guns were not actually given to Bill Cody, um, and, you know, there's sort of a different idea here of what actually happened. There's this incredible montage here that, again, forgoes the traditional sort of comic-style panels in favor of a much more artistic approach, um, and the guns were actually a reward for a shooting contest between Bill Cody and the chief himself. So now Beth Cody has a little bit more of an interest in the chief and a little bit more of a connection because it's actually going to be the next generation who does the shooting fight. And so he wants to redeem his honor 
and sort of the Rostov name, right? And so uh, these allies and the Cossacks give Beth an offer. So they will provide Indy with an army of Cossacks to defeat the entire estate and retrieve the guns, assuming that Count Salkovich is the one who stole them. After the guns are retrieved, Peter will challenge Beth in a daring shootout to determine who claims ownership of the golden guns. So basically the idea is Beth and Peter are the next generation of fighters uh, who are taking over from the slowly dying, uh, you know, chief. And then of course, uh, Buffalo Bill, who has already passed away. And uh, in order to kind of prove ownership of the guns and restore honor, they have to sort of have a shootout. And this goes back to what I was just saying a moment ago. The motives to me feel a little bit weak. And it's sort of told to Indy that, you know, the offer is sort of like, okay, you help us find the golden guns, we will give you an army. My question is here, if they have such a strong army, what do they need Indy for? Why can't they just obtain the golden guns on their own? Why do they need the shootout, right? They clearly have all of the armed forces needed. They know where Salkovich lives. What does Indy need to be, you know, there for? I mean, again, maybe it's just sort of they're creating a plot for the comics, but to me, in my eyes, and again, maybe I'm reading too into it, maybe other people have different thoughts, but it was glaringly obvious to me that Indy did not need to be there. Why can't they just go on their own and get the Golden Gums for themselves? Why do they have to propose this really unnecessary shootout and fight when they could just go retrieve the guns for themselves? I, I feel like the idea of allies versus enemies, it, it, it just, there's a line there that was confusing to me with the Cossacks. I'm not sure if you had any thoughts about this. Yeah, I see what you mean because, um, you know, they have this whole army already and I can see Beth being useful in a fight, but Indy's just one more guy and he's not, you know, a super talented fighter. But another thing here is Indy's not really being a very, very much of a careful fella as he walks out and he doesn't remember perhaps the revenge warnings because he gets whacked on the head uh, with a log by Pukachev. And then when he comes to with this great shot of the eye, you see him tied up with each of his limbs tied to a rope with a horse on the other end. Uh, and this is, you know, this is not a good situation to be in, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Indy is knocked out from behind. Obviously, there's that great shot there of Indy's eye to symbolize his awakening. And when he gets up, of course, we see the cover page. Indy's hands and ankles are tied down. Uh, four separate horses are tied to Indy's limbs. And this is very similar, actually, to the alligator trap in the Gold Goddess comic. Um, and, you know, Indy obviously furious at this point. He's like, I get the picture, Pugachev, but you'll never get away with this, right? And there's that menacing close-up on him. Uh, and, of course, Pugachev is actually a spy for Count Salkovich. So, again, another indication that Salkovich probably stole these guns from Buffalo Bill. You know, Pugachev holding the whip above Indy. You know, he's frightened for his life and you know he finally kind of recognizes who Indy is and what he's seeing um you know figuratively and literally um and then of course there's these phenomenal panels to end the comic four different shots here uh, at the very very bottom of the page right uh with narration of course uh the insult is cut short that's when the whip is raised uh as spirited stallions rear high bolting forward that's when the horses gallop while braided ropes pull taut with a gut-churning snap. This is when Indy's hand gets pulled and there's a close-up on it. And then finally, and Indiana Jones screams and there's a close-up on his face, literally with the most frightening, you know, sort of terror you've ever seen to kind of leave us on the cliffhanger and end of the comic. Uh, what do you think about this final scene and the entirety of part one overall? Yeah, so there's a, I guess there's a lot of things I like about this comic. Uh, that would be, for instance, the uh, the montage scenes. You know, they're really well drawn, uh, great illustrations. I think Harrison Ford's face is better depicted in this comic than I've seen in certain other ones. 
Um, but there's also some things I don't really care for too, such as um, there's a lot of lines that just really stand out to me and bring me out of the story just because of how bad they are. Um, and there's a few sort of plot holes. But other than that, I enjoy it. I think, you know, if you have the chance, pick up this comic, give it a read, uh, and you'll you'll have a fun time too. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think this is a really strong comic. Um, obviously, the main reason I think we wanted to talk about this one was the inclusion of Short Round. Uh, while it is short, it is certainly memorable, uh, although it would have been great, I think, to have him as a sidekick, really, in the entire comic. Uh, but that opening prologue, I think, with the sort of scuba diving scene uh, with Short Round in there is really, really fun and just kind of so nostalgic when you're reading this um, as well. Um, now, as for the entirety of this comic... I think part two was a little bit stronger um, in terms of, you know, the rest of the story. Obviously, we get introduced to Ephraim Decker and Beth Cody. Uh, Beth Cody, obviously, we learn a lot about Buffalo Bill, the golden guns that we're after. There's a lot of historical significance there. Um, but as far as the comic itself, I do think it falls a little bit on my rankings in terms of maybe where it compares to some of the others. Again, I think the real reason we wanted this one was for uh, Short Round's inclusion. Uh, in part two, I'll talk about one of the other reasons why I think this comic is really strong, going again with what I've been mentioning a little bit, and the idea that India's sort of a uh, side character here. I think it's really interesting the way they deal with Beth Cody in part two here, and the ending, I think, in particular. But yeah, I also thought there were, again, a couple of, you know, things with the plot where you were sort of like... I'm not super convinced that this is a really strong story. Um, why does Indy need to be here? Uh, he sort of doesn't feel like the classic hero. Obviously, Marion and Marcus aren't there. So I think it's sort of a 50-50 split, I think, for me. Um, again, I don't think the quotes are as memorable, like you said. I'm not sure that the sketches and illustrations are as good as some of the others. But again, we're holding that a high bar, especially for me with, with the Gold Goddess being one of my you know top you know expanded universe adventures of all time, just coming off of that. Uh, but again, I do think this last scene here which we talked about is a really really great introduction into part two and a really really nice sort of um you know kind of cliffhanger moment like we always have to sort of be indie kind of almost powerless here against this sort of brute uh named pugachev that about concludes today's episode everybody thank you so much for joining us uh if you haven't had a chance to read this comic make sure you do so it's issue number 26 uh we'll be back in the next episode with part two um, if this is your first time listening and you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. Leave a review. Tell other people what you think about the show. Uh, if you want to join our conversation, you can do so over on Twitter, at The Indie Universe. Uh, we have lots of exclusive news and updates about fun Indiana Jones things and the podcast as well. So thanks again for joining us, guys, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Once again, I'm Elijah. And I'm Will. And until next time. So long, Dr. Jones. Jones. Yeah.